0: Um, unsurprisingly there'll be handouts um, which I will give to you in a few minutes actually some of them are still printing out but um, I was going to do this at the end of class but it probably makes more sense to do it at the beginning of class which is, do you guys know about the My Favorite Poem Project? Um, well it's a cool thing Um, you'll see the web address on this Um, it's basically people um, reciting or reading from poems that they love and um, these are people from um, all parts of American society, all backgrounds, um, really um, interested um, sometimes in surprising poems. Um, and um, it's a very moving thing. Robert Pinsky, who was Poet Laureate and who worked really hard for, um, to push poetry in America, did this a few years ago. Robert Pinsky is an okay poet, poet that is, um, he has about uh, 10 or 12 good poems, which is about 10 or 12 more good poems than almost anyone else in the universe, including most published poets, um, but he's published hundreds and hundreds of poems. Um, so it's amazing, those 10 or 12 poems, they're amazing, um, but there are many, many um, other poems by him. So at any rate, he was a fantastic poet laureate. And um, he did this uh, My Favorite Poems project. So um, I want to show you one by someone reading from Whitman. Um, not from what you read, which is, I let you guys off um, a little bit easy with Whitman, although I hope um, you'll want to read a lot more um, by giving you one great poem by Whitman. Whitman's longest um, poem, and certainly his longest great poem, is the poem called Song of Myself, um, which is... Fifth, which is. Um, probably about 25 times as long as Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. It's in 52 um, different sections. And um, the guy we're about to see is going to read the last um, read from the last two sections of Song of Myself. Um, you can see that Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking is itself a kind of Song of Myself, because what he's doing there, and we're going to talk about the poem, um, what he's doing in Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking is um, talking about what it was that um, made him a poet, um, what it was that made him into the person that he became. Um, We are not going to get to Invisible Man today, I don't think. Um, I hope you guys are reading it and loving it, yes. Um, Really amazing, different from um, stuff that we have read um, so far in various ways and similar to stuff that we've read so far in various ways as well. Um, we'll talk about it, uh, certainly Wednesday, in section on Thursday, and probably again next Monday. Yeah? Is
1: there anything, it's very, it's huge, is there anything specifically that we should be looking out for, like, certain patterns,
0: certain, like, I'm not sure that that's, um, an answerable question. In other words, what most works of literature do is they tell you how to read them. Um, that's, that's, um, a thing, this, okay, so here's just a tiny little bit of theory. Um, any work of literature that you read, uh, the first thing it's going to tell you is what kind of work it is. Um, we talked about this a little bit in terms of first versus third person narratives. Um, Jane Eyre lets you know that it's a first person narrative in the first paragraph. Um, 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 the Aspern Papers lets you know that it's a first-person narrative, I think, in the first sentence. Other works um, make it clear that they're not third, that they're not first-person narratives. Um, the Dead would be an example of something that you can tell from the first paragraph can't really be a first-person narrative. Mrs. Dalloway as well. Um, if Mrs. Dalloway said she would bring the flowers herself, Only if in the second sentence someone says, I protested um, because I thought I had better taste. But if she says that, then that has to be something that's being said um, as a general fact. Um, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Um, that's, that could be the first sentence of a first person narrative. Um, in fact it sounds like the first se- if you think about it it sounds like the first per- sentence of a first person narrative, but it quickly turns out not to be by the time you get three or four sentences into the dead. Um, as I said in section, and this is something um, this is a game that you can play with these ideas, you can't be sure that a narrative is um, third person until it's over. You, um, you can know that a narrative is first person from its first sentence, um, you can't know for a fact that a narrative is third person until it's over. Um, but nevertheless, if a narrator withholds the fact that they're, right, that they're a first person narrator more than a page or two in a novel, that's interesting. That's not just par for the course. That's playing a game with genre. Um, In a poem, you will know from the first four or five lines whether it rhymes, again, with very few exceptions. There are poems that turn out to rhyme, um, but you don't find out that they rhyme for 50 pages. I think that's the limit, where you don't realize that a poem is actually written in rhymes um, until you've read about 50 pages of it. But again, that's playing with the fact that generally when you read a poem, you will know from the outside whether, outset whether it's, and from the outside, whether it's a rhyming poem or not a rhyming poem, um, whether it's in meter or whether it's in free verse. Um, you also have to know what kind of novel you're reading. So if you um, start reading a novel which begins, um, um, I burst into the room and there was a tomato lying on the bed. Um, You would know, maybe not in the first sentence, but in the second sentence, whether this was a novel about strange farm practices under Soviet agriculture, where people um, put tomatoes on beds, or whether it was really crappy (laughs) 1930s slang um, detective fiction, with a tomato being a 1930s slang term for a woman. Um, but you have to know quickly. If you're reading science fiction, then you don't care that you don't know what certain technical terms mean because they're just made up, but if you're reading, um, you know, if you read Philip K. Dick, for example, lots of technical terms in Philip K. Dick that are just made up technical terms. They sound like they're science, but they're not, Um, and that's a general rule of science fiction, but if you're reading a realistic novel set right now, Um, then you would wonder what something meant if you didn't recognize it, Um, if you didn't realize that in, um, I don't know, Japan, um, something was actually um, a brand of smartphone in Japan that a Japanese reader would recognize immediately, although perhaps an American reader wouldn't. So, So works of literature have to tell you the genre that they're in for us to know how to respond to them the main thing they have to tell you is, are they fiction or nonfiction? Um, that's the very first thing you need to know, is are you reading fiction or non-fiction? At least for prose, that's the very first thing you need to know. Is this fiction or non-fiction? The thing about Invisible Man is that the genre seems to keep changing. Um, and the things in it, the pieces in it, the long discourses, within it, um, are generically very different from each other. Jim Trueblood's story, for example, is very, just to talk about stuff um, that I'm sure you've gotten to already, is very, very different from Homer Barbie's speech, Um, and um, a story which was originally published separately, like Battle Royal, um, which first came out as a story, although is then the, as I hope you read the intro to Invisible Man. If you, I mean, Ellison's 1981 intro. If you haven't, um, read it when you finish the novel. It's okay if you don't read it at the beginning. Except he may, yeah, when you finish the novel, you'll see that there are certain sly jokes in the intro that you wouldn't get um, just by reading the intro. In particular, a joke about a rind and a heart, which may have puzzled you or you may not have noticed, um, but which is a central joke um, once you've read the entire novel. Read it at some point. It's um, important to read. But different people say different things. There are different um, generic worlds that the narrator of Invisible Man keeps finding himself in. One reason um, that he is an invisible man, to quote the novel's first sentence, um, is a sociological and um, racial reason. He's invisible to those around him. He explains this from the start. Um, that he's not, and he tells you from the start that even though the first sentence of the book is "I am an invisible man," isn't it? Is that I, um, the next sentence? Is and this is not a science fiction novel. That is, can you read it, Courtney? Not one of those ghouls or something? Yeah, no, I'm not a spook like to Yeah, or, and doesn't he mention H.G. Wells also? Because mm-hmm. H.G. Wells' famous novel, um, The Invisible Man, is what his title will at first make you think of. Um, H.G. Wells' novel is about someone who is literally invisible, which, is, which makes it science fiction. Um, He is not literally invisible. He's invisible at a far deeper level than the literal. And what he's saying is if you're looking for literal invisibility, go to science fiction or go to horror fiction, go to Edgar Allan Poe. If you're looking for something that's deeper than that, real horror, rather than Edgar Allan Poe horror fiction, then read this. So the first thing he does is tell you what genre it isn't, not what genre it is and the genre that it is keeps changing as you're reading it and partly it keep partly that's what makes him invisible or partly that's the way he discovers that he is invisible is that he can't count on a stable world the fictional world that he lives in which is very close to the real world although also often a hysterical and therefore proper intensification of the real world, is a world which is extremely unstable. And it's unstable because the social relations of that world are bitterly unstable and bitterly unfair. And so part of the idea of the Invisible Man is whenever you think you can peg it, You know, it's not hard to peg Virginia Woolf. Um, She does something really, really amazing, and she sustains it throughout the entire novel. Um, What Ellison is doing is constantly changing things in the course of the novel. Um, I do want to say one thing, and then we'll get to um, looking at this video, um, about um, the um, Du Bois reading that I hope you also did uh, for today, and um, Du Bois is really an amazing figure. Um, the, um, the figure of Dr. Bledsoe is based on Booker T. Washington. Um, that is to say that uh, he's not quite Booker T. Washington, but the founder of the school that The Invisible Man goes to is based on Booker T. Washington as the founder of the Tuskegee Institute. And Dr. Bledsoe is, um, as the founder's prophet and um, his inheritor and his disciple and his second in command, and also the corrupter, to some extent, of those ideals, which he um, certainly is, although how much that matters and to what extent that's true um, is an issue, um, is also a spokesperson for some of the things, some of the attitudes that Washington took, especially in relation to um, how to interact with um, northern whites and with southern whites and with um, possible philanthropists and how not to act with them. Um, Du Bois was very much his antagonist. Um, Booker T. Washington officially was against litigating for integration, against demanding certain constitutional rights because he thought it would alienate um, a lot of white allies if they were to do that, whereas Du Bois and his allies were pushing really, really hard for what would eventually, much later, Um, Become Brown versus Board of Education, would eventually, much later, become the legal victories um, that were um, so important, such important steps um, in the 1950s, such important steps after World War II. Um, this is, Invisible Man is written before Brown versus Board of Education, which is 1954, um, but it's written at a time when black activism um, has become much stronger. Um, black demands for civil rights have become much stronger, and rightly so. Um, so when you read Du Bois, you should be reading, or now that you've read Du Bois, you should be thinking of him as someone who, in real life, was um, an antagonist of the figure represented in the book by Dr. Bledsoe. And um, the way Dr. Bledsoe treats Invisible Man, at, the Invisible Man at the start of the book as a student, as a junior in college, in the first third of the book, it's beyond the start. Um, the way he treats him is um, partly um, awful, or it is awful, um, and it partly, therefore, you should put it in the context of this um, strong political debate, debate about political efficacy um, that's occurring between Washington and Du Bois. Um, So that's just a little bit of context um, for you there. And um, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, As you read the book, the important thing to get is that... um, the narrator keeps finding himself among people who seem very different from the previous people that he's found himself among. Um, as he moves north, which he, I mean, he doesn't, it's not that this is a travel north, but to some extent it is. Um, he, goes to, he goes to school, he goes to college, and then he goes north to New York. And do people remember, see we're not talking about this today, but do people remember um, the direction that the cop gives him when he says, how do I get to Harlem? Just keep going north, Just keep going north. yeah which is a great line, just keep going north. That is that, yeah, he went north all the way from Alabama to New York, but now the question is how do you get to Harlem? Well, you keep going north. That is, you go north on Manhattan Island. You go north from 42nd Street to 125th Street or 165th or wherever. Um, So keep going north. But it turns out that it's not so clear how good going north really is. Things change. Um, As he goes to different places, people change, and yet there is also a commonality among them. Um, And that's one of the things that he's um, learning, um, seeing, being the screen onto which these facts are projected, these fictional facts are projected. um, But also... um, I hope you notice the moment, if you haven't finished it, where he comes upon the man on the ladder um, when he first gets to Harlem and there are a bunch of people listening to the man on the ladder and there are are flags on the ladder and then everyone else is ignoring him and that man is named as Raz, R-A-S, and um, if you read the intro, um, you will have seen that he's... And he, I think he mentions it earlier, too. He mentions Raz the Destroyer a couple of times. Um, so pay attention to Raz the Destroyer. The other thing to pay attention to, and I'm a little bit hesitant to tell you this, but I think it's better to tell you than not to, is the use of colors in the book um, all the way through. Um, Ellison is really, really careful about telling you colors of things, of things that don't seem, where the colors don't seem to matter, but they always matter. Um, So, for example, when he and Mr. Norton are driving around outside of the school, he is always going back and back and back to the bright white line that divides the highway. Um, And that's a fairly simple symbol to be able to interpret. That what is making the divisions, what is dividing the roads that people travel on, and even dividing the roads um, between different directions, those going in one direction and those going in another direction, is a white line. Um, And that white line is dispositive and determinative. Um, so pay attention to that. Um, but really pay attention also to the odd blankness of the narrator, which is something that we haven't really seen before in this class. A narrator who is describing all the things that's happening to him, but seems to know almost nothing about himself. He's describing everything that's surprising to him, but it's almost as though he has no self. hes its It's... Interesting, it would be interesting um, to compare him to Jane Eyre as a narrator Um, because there are a lot of ways that they're similar, which is that they try to think well of those around them until they can't anymore. Um, But there are lots of ways that they're different, which is that Jane Eyre slowly comes to her own conclusions about things in a way that the Invisible Man isn't quite allowed to, simply by the way things are, he's not quite allowed to come to his own conclusions, his own final conclusions about anything, um, or it takes a really long time. So um, that's your answer, Lolly. That's what to pay attention to. Okay, so this is, um, as I say, from the Poetry Project, and... This is, um, so it's uh, favoritepoem.org, just so you know. There are lots of videos on this of uh, people describing their favorite poems. Um, and this is a guy from south of Boston.
1: My name is John Doherty. I'm from Branch, Massachusetts, 34 years old, and I'm a construction worker for the Boston Gas Company. We do outside construction work, providing natural gas for residents or businesses. So, uh, a lot of um, digging, laying pipelines, happening into gas mains, all outdoor work. The satisfying thing about the job is you're working with a dangerous element, really. So, it's it's important to be exact in everything you do. You certainly don't want to leave any kind of a gas leak behind. So, um, you know, you have to be careful, you have to pay attention. Poetry was, was definitely intimidating initially. Uh, it just looked like a lot of words and that were out of order and out of place and uh, did not belong together, and that's that's the challenge of it. It just takes a lot of reading and rereading to grasp it. But once you do, once you come to understand it, you've achieved something. So now you feel good. Song of Myself is a poem that I probably had a lot of difficulty understanding the first time, and there were certain lines that caught me and that I liked. And when I got to the very end of this very long poem, um, the last half dozen lines, so encouraging. He, in those last few lines, Whitman tells you what you're thinking. He says that you probably didn't understand what you just read, but stay with it, and you will, and you'll love it. And so it felt like it was, speaking directly to me when I first read it, and I keep those lines in mind no matter what I read now. The connection I feel with Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, is not due to the fact that he talks about laborers, physical labor, working outside, like the common working American. Uh, That's a nice touch in it, of course, but I enjoyed it for its its upliftingness, its its ability to inspire me and and see things in life and in everyday existence that I hadn't noticed before, that I might have taken for granted before. "Song of Myself" by Walt Whitman. There is that in me, I do not know what it is but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, and my body becomes. I sleep, I sleep long. I do not know it, it is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines, I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, oh my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my lawyering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wild. It coaxes me to the vapor in the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt, to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless, and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you.
0: I timed that pretty pretty perfectly. Okay. Thank you. What'd you guys think? The right word would be really moving. What'd you guys think? (laughs) He is a good reader. He's very PBS. (laughs) (laughs) In what sense? You mean just? it's, It's
1: like the way they um. The way they film people, yeah. their like, documentary style is very... Oh,
0: I wouldn't know, would I? Actually, I would. Go on. It's, it's just very... Uh, um, it's, I, don't, I don't want to
1: say cheesy, but it's a little <laughs> cheesy.
0: It's yeah, but it's good cheese. Oh, yeah. I've, it's it's, it's, it's really good cheese. It's aged and, and um, very high quality and French and weeping like a really good Brie, but from Boston.
1: <laughs>
0: right? So moving, cheesy and moving, cheesily, mo- cheesily moving, movingly cheesy. I just want you to know, okay? Good. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a wonderful thing. Okay, handouts. Um, there are three of them. One is English Department courses in the fall, because I know you're desperate to know, and... But you won't be looking at this during class, right? Right. And then um, there are two sheets, two double-sided sheets, so make sure you take one of each. Actually, I'm going to make sure I take one of each just in case. Um, So make sure you take one of each. Um, And we'll talk some more about Whitman. Um, A little bit through... um, Finishing, talking about the brain is wider than the sky. So look at the last stanza, which I put on one of the sheets, of the brain is wider than the sky. Um, And um, I also um, recall to your mind, um, I started early, took my dog, Um, which it's possible, um, we don't know, but it's possible that um, that was a poem that Dickinson wrote after reading Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Um, And it's um, certainly interesting to compare and contrast the two. Um, Both Dickinson and Whitman, or both Dickinson's speaker and Whitman's speaker, visit the sea, and both of them have a very intense um, experience with the sea, but both of them also respond to um, their experience with the sea differently. Um, But one reason to think that Dickinson may have out of the cradle, endlessly rocking, endlessly rocking in her own mind, is if you look at the brain is wider than the sky. Um, I should tell you, by the way, Whitman loved Emerson, and he sent Emerson a copy of his first book of poems. Whitman, like Blake, was a printer, um, and he sent Emerson a copy of his poems, and um, Emerson thought they were fantastic. And he wrote Whitman a letter saying, I, I greet you on the start of a great career. They later had a falling out. Um, but Whitman and Thoreau and Dickinson were um, the three greatest followers of Emerson. Um, and two of them, that is uh, Dickinson and Whitman, were certainly rivals of Emerson as um, in the greatness of their writing. Um, So look at um, the brain is wider than the sky again just uh, to remind you of it. The brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side the one the other will (coughs) will contain with ease and you beside and then what we didn't get to the brain is deeper than the sea for hold them blue to blue The one, the other, will absorb as sponges' buckets do. So in the same way that sponges will absorb buckets, um, the sponge looks smaller than the bucket, but will expand uh, expand with the water and absorb everything in the bucket. So too, the brain will absorb the entire sea, wider than the sky, deeper than the sea. And then the final last stanza, the brain is just the weight of God. So exactly equivalent to God, not greater than God, which you might expect her to say and which maybe she does say in the last two lines, but she begins by saying the brain is just the weight of God. For heft them, pound for pound, and the idea that you could weigh God um, See how many pounds God tips the scales at. Heft the brain three pounds, heft God, heft them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do, if there's any difference between the brain and God, which there may not be, but they will differ if they do as syllable from sound. That is, that the only difference, if there is a difference between the brain and God is the difference between a syllable and a sound. And what she's asking you to do is think about the difference between a syllable and a sound, and think about what that has to do with the brain and with God. Um, Why, if you say something is just the weight of something else, would you then go to a metaphor having to do with the sounds of words, syllable from sound? Um, I know you're on the edge of your seats for the answer, so I'll tell you. because syllables have meanings and sounds don't. What it means for something to be a syllable is that it's a sound to which meaning is attached. Um, A one or a zero in computer code, a dot or a dash in Morse code, um, the syll in syllable, or the um, syllable that makes up the word sound, all of those are syllables. A one or a zero is a syllable. A dot or a dash is a syllable. Um, All of those things are syllables, and they are also sounds. So if I go... Everyone knows that one? SOS. SOS. If I do that, if I send it on an SOS... Reference? Okay. You can just laugh, and that shows you know the reference. Um, If I send it on an SOS, it's not that this is anything but a sound. It's that the brain gives that sound meaning. That the dot, which is the letter E in Morse code, or the dash, which is the letter T in Morse code. They no longer teach it in the Naval Academy, by the way. It's kind of unfortunate. But dots and dashes, they're just sounds. Anything can be the sound of a dot or a dash. Um, But the brain gives them meaning turns them into meaning. So if, sil- if the brain and God differ as syllable from sound, then God is only real if the brain thinks that he's real. The reality of God, the source of God, the origin of God is in the brain. The origin of the God is taking... What I called, what I quoted, William James as describing as the big booming, buzzing confusion of the world, taking it and projecting meaning onto it, turning sound into syllable. That's the amazing thing that happens when we learn language: is that sounds turn into syllables. Um, that once they become syllables, then they have meaning. In modern linguistics, these are called morphemes. Morphemes are the smallest units of meanings in words. Um, And they're more or less what she's meaning by a syllable. So she's saying, yes, God is everything. God is everything. But everything is something without meaning unless the brain finds meaning in it. And that's to take a sound and turn it into a syllable so I wanted to show you another little um, certain reaction to Whitman um, in Wallace Stevens's amazing um, poem the comedian as the letter C a very long poem um, who it which is about a character named Crispin who wishes to be a poet, and he's a failed poet. It's a kind of autobiographical poem by a very depressed Wallace Stevens um, about what he felt was his own failure as a poet. Um, He was the greatest American poet of the 20th century, um, but this was before that, um, before um, he managed to keep pushing on. Still, it's a great poem. The comedian as the letter C, and he is the comedian. Um, The letter C is precisely not the syllable C, that is, the ocean, the C-S-E-A, but simply the reduction to not a syllable, but just to pure sound out of which syllables can be built, but into which syllables may decompose back into sound. So it's as though he's simply the letter C. The other pun in the title is that he's a sea of letters, but only letters not of words. So this is um, a section in which um, he, one of many sections in which things are falling apart for him. His name is Crispin and he's the lutinist of fleas, the knave don't worry if you don't if you can't make sense of all of this, partly the whole point is that it's a sea of letters, a sea of sounds, a sea of images, but not cohering, and huge eternal chaos, as uh, Milton would put it. Crispin. The lutenist of fleas, the knave, the thane, the ribbon stick, the bellowing breeches, cloak of China, cap of Spain, imperative haw of hum, inquisitorial botanist and general lexi- lexicographer of mute and maidenly greenhorns, now beheld himself, he's traveling to America, now beheld himself, a skinny sailor peering in the sea glass, And then here's a question. What word split up in clickering syllables and storming under multitudinous tones was named for this short shanks in all that brunt? So here's a question. What word somehow coming up, storming, and splitting up and clicking Um, as he crosses the sea, names him in all that brunt, as he bears the brunt of distance and the brunt of the entire ocean. Crispin was washed away by magnitude, the very opposite of what Dickinson is describing. Crispin is washed away by magnitude. He doesn't absorb it. He's washed away by it. The whole of life that still remained in him dwindled to one sound, strumming in his ear, ubiquitous concussion, slap and sigh, polyphony beyond his baton's thrust. So that's Crispin washed away by magnitude, but there's one sound, one syllable, one word split up into its own syllables. And that word, there's a, there's one more poem by Wallace Stevens that you should read. It's fantastic. The Idea of Order at Key West, uh, which my roommate in college had to write a paper on my first semester there. And he said, here, look at this poem. What do you think of it? And I read it and I said, oh my god, that's a great poem. Um, and that's when I started reading Wallace Stevens. Um, so you should read it. Because you'll say, oh my god, that's a great poem. And then you will read Wallace Stevens. Um, but Um, both the idea of Order of Key West and The Communion is the Letter C and many other poems by Stevens are memories, responses to, um, fears of Walt Whitman and fears in particular of Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. So let's take a look at Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. What is the word? Um in Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking, that comes from the sea. What word does he hear? Death. Death. Yes, what he hears the sea whisper to him is that sweet, delicious word, death. And um, it's worth looking at this really, really, really remarkable poem. Even if we can't get through it all, let's try to. As with the Intimations Ode, it's worth um, going through it just hearing it line by line. Um, It's very, just to tell you that it's very typical of Whitman in that it's full of long, repetitive um, instances of what he is thinking or feeling. Um, Dickinson is very famous for his catalogs. That is, he, in American poetry, established something that you will see a whole lot of in American literature from Whitman to David Foster Wallace um, to Thomas Pynchon to Allen Ginsberg. Um, catalogs of things that just build up and build up and build up. Um, this is, he doesn't do it that much here but he does do it. So the cradle endlessly rocking, who will it turn out is rocking the cradle? Do you remember? It's the sea that is rocking the cradle. Um, The cradle is the sea, or the cradle is um, your experience of the sea when the sea is rocking. Not the letter C, but the sea itself. Out of the cradle, endlessly rocking. Out of the mockingbird's throat, the musical shuttle. The mockingbird is going to turn out to be the he-bird later in the poem. The musical shuttle. Out of the ninth month midnight, what do you think the ninth month midnight is? What's the ninth month? Sorry? Okay, yeah, there's certainly a hint of birth there. That is that you're born after nine months. Um, But it's also a Quaker, um, the way Quakers describe what month do you think? When things happen in the ninth month of the year, this is easy. yes September um, so it matters that you know that so that you can know what he's talking about when he talks about the fifth month later yeah Why
1: midnight?
0: Um, because he's out of, he's watching the sea at midnight okay. um, he goes out late 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 at night um, he Whitman unlike many poets actually knows the phases of the moon um, which is something you can notice here Whitman really really knew nature um, Do people know this, that if it's a full moon, when does it rise? People know when a full moon rises? See, you can't be nature poets till you learn this. Just so you know, learn the phases of the moon if you want to be a nature poet. Full moon rises at sunset um, because the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. That's why it's a full moon, why you see all of it. Um, a half moon, the moon rises about an hour later every night. Um, so a waning half moon, that is a half moon after it's been full, will rise halfway through the night. Um, a waning half moon rises, um, around midnight. A new moon rises then, when the moon is all the way waned, and you never see a new moon. At dawn, the new moon rises with the sun. So the moon rises an hour later, every day and every night. So now you can be nature poets. It's good. Um, So um, out of the ninth month midnight, so it's September midnight, over the sterile sands and the fields beyond where the child leaving his bed wandered alone, bareheaded, barefoot, down from the showered halo. So who's the child leaving his bed? Sorry? It's Walt. Yes, yeah, sorry, I thought you said it was Wolf, and I thought that would be really interesting if he was watching Virginia Woolf in Long Island. Yes! <laughs> that would be a bit creepy. It would That's be creepy, scary, but great. Yeah. Um, down from the showered halo, that is down from seeing the sky full of stars, up from the mystic, he's not walking, that is, this is where all of this is coming from. It's coming out of the cradle. It's coming down from the showered halo. It's coming up from the mystic play of shadows, twining and twisting as if they were alive. It's coming out from the patches of briars and blackberries. And it's coming, ultimately, from the memories of the bird that chanted to me. So a bird sings to him, and it's coming from his memories of that bird that chanted to me. From your memories, sad brother, who's the you're there? Do you know? If you know the poem well, you'll know who he calls his brother in the poem. The bird. So first he talks about the bird that chanted to me, so the child has turned into a me. And then the bird also goes from third to second person, from your memories, sad brother. From the fitful risings and fallings I heard from under that yellow half-moon late-risen, so risen at midnight, and swollen as if with tears, from those beginning notes of yearning and love there in the mist, from the thousand responses of my heart never to cease, from the myriad thence aroused words, so his heart was responded and was aroused into words, and then finally... Not the myriad thence aroused words, but from the word stronger and more delicious than any. That is the word death it will turn out. From such as, from such as now they start, the scene revisiting as a flock, twittering, rising or overhead, passing, born hither, ear all, eludes me hurriedly, a man, yet by these tears, the little boy again, throwing myself on the sand, confronting the waves, I, chanter of pains and joys, uniter of here and hereafter, taking all hints to use them, but swiftly leaping beyond them, a reminiscence, saying. So out of all of these things, if you were simply to reduce this one sentence, paragraph into its simplest form out of all of these things um, hearing all of these things start up again he takes all those hints and sings a reminiscence a memory and here's his memory, once Pomanic, which is the old name the old um, Native American name for Long Island, it means um, fish shaped once Pomanic when the lilac scent anyone from long island Really? All right. Once pomanic, I'm sure you can find a pomanic gas station somewhere. Once pomanic, when the lilac scent was in the air and fifth month grass was growing, so grass from when? May. Good up this seashore in some briars two feathered guests from alabama two together and their nest and four light green eggs spotted with brown so he sees the two birds and their nest and their eggs and every day the he bird to and fro near at hand and every day the she bird crouched on her nest silent with bright eyes. So as a child he went every day to see this. As a young naturalist, he went every day to see this. Um, he was fascinated. And everyday I, a curious boy, never too close, never disturbing them, cautiously peering, absorbing, translating, absorbing the way the one the other will absorb, as sponges buckets do, and then translating sounds into syllables. And Here they are. This is the he-bird singing. Shine, 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 pour down your warmth, great sun. While we bask, we two together. Two together. So this is birdsong that he's translating for us. Here it is birdsong as well. Two together. Winds blow south, or winds blow north. Day come white, or night come black. Home Or rivers and mountains from home. That is, either we're at home or we are that far away from home. Rivers and mountains, not acres and acres, but rivers and mountains from home. Because it's a world. It's continuous. Singing all time. Minding no time while we two keep together. So there's love between the birds, between the lovebirds. There they are that's love, everything is okay, till of a sudden (coughs) may be killed, unknown to her mate. One forenoon, the she-bird crouched not on the nest, nor returned that afternoon, nor the next, nor ever appeared again. And thenceforward, all summer in the sound of the sea, and at night, under the full of the moon and calmer weather. Over the hoarse surging of the sea, or flitting from briar to briar by day, I saw I heard at intervals the remaining one, the he bird, the solitary guest from Alabama, and the bird now sings, "Blow, blow, blow," so what chaser play is the bird read Weird. yes, why. Yes, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage, blow, blow up sea winds along Pomonic's shore. I wait, and I wait till you blow my mate to me. Yes, says the boy, when, or, or says Whitman, when the stars glistened all night long on the prong of a moss-scalloped stake, down almost amid the slapping waves, sat the lone singer, wonderful, causing tears, So there's the singer causing tears sitting on this stake. He called on his mate. He poured forth the meanings which I, of all men, know. He knows them, although, again, you have to read, you have to understand how much Whitman deserves subtlety in reading him. He knows them because he, too, is solitary. He, of all men, understands this because he, too, is as lonely as that bird. Yes, my brother, I know. The rest might not, but I have treasured every note for more than once dimly down to the beach, gliding silent, avoiding the moonbeams, blending myself with the shadows, recalling now the obscure shapes, the echoes, the sounds and sights after their sorts, the white arms out in the breakers, tirelessly tossing. Stevens is going to echo that in The Idea of Order at Key West, um, where he describes the sea as being like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves. So here it's the white arms of the breakers, tirelessly tossing. I, with bare feet, a child, the wind wafting my hair, listened long and long, listened to keep to sing, Now translating the notes, following you, my brother. Okay, we'll pick it up from there and finish it and then talk about Invisible Man on Wednesday. So read as much as you can. Um, We'll probably be talking about Invisible Man through Monday, um, Wednesday, and then section on Thursday, and then again on Monday. Um, But there's still a bunch of reading in this class, and there is a final exam, so read as much as you can.